So this morning will not be a fire and brimstone message. Can I get a woo? Woo! Uh, we get to take a little bit of a break. And you say, Pastor, wait a second. Are you not going to be in Revelation today? No, I will be in Revelation. But God has ordained a break from the wrath and judgments that happen in really chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And there's sort of an interlude, not an intermission where you can go get popcorn, okay? But it's a little bit of a break in the, the uh, context. The same thing happened earlier in Revelation when the seals on the scroll, the scroll that's in the throne room of God that's being unsealed, when the sixth seal is broken, there's an extended break, and then the seventh seal happens. The same thing happens here as we go into Revelation chapter 10, because last week we talked about the trumpet sounding number five and number six, but then there's this break in chapter 10 through half of chapter 11 where uh, a trumpet is not apparent. There are other things that are going on. So um, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to dive into God's word today. Uh, we'll go through the entire chapter, chapter 10. It's only 11 verses, um, but we'll get through that today. And I sincerely believe, if you've been with us for any period of time throughout this Revelation series, I sincerely believe there are some of the messages that are, that are through Revelation, throughout the Revelation that we've been looking at, that have a, a today here and now application for you and I. We're still waiting for the return of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay. They've been waiting. I heard my parents talk about it with passion in ministry. I've heard the old preachers of yesteryear preach about it with fervor. I still today believe that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It could happen any day, any moment, any hour. We are not sure of the timing of it, but we know that God has given us a revelation of not only Jesus Christ, which is the book of Revelation, but it's also revealing of things that will take place near the end and at the end. So jump with me in Revelation chapter 10, and we begin in verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Then I saw, this is John speaking, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, he was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. I want to stop there for just a second, and I, I want you to engage your mind this morning and think about the images that you're, you're, you're reading and hearing about. I was talking to a friend of mine down in Florida. Um, I took a crazy risk and drove 14 hours straight to drop off my kids. Oh, it was a good feeling to drop them off. <laughs> uh, we're picking them back up, okay? We didn't give them up for adoption. And you know them. They're beautiful inside and out. Um, we love them. But time away is a good thing. Amen? Why was I saying this? Oh, uh, because I was talking to a friend of mine. I met up with a buddy who I get to see only once a year, and we go out to dinner and hang out for a little bit. Um, and that's kind of a bonus for doing the, the long trip that I do. And um, we were talking, and he said something about, you know, I listen to audiobooks all the time. 
And I said, oh, that's great. Good for you. <laughs> I don't, I didn't really, I don't get into the audio books, but I will tell you, my wife loves them. She's a fiction reader. She absorbs that stuff and she can listen and the person is talking and they're, and the couple is walking beside the water and the creek. And then uh, out from the trees comes a cardinal. She's imagining all of this in her mind's eye and seeing it happen like a movie. That's why when you talk to her, if you talk to her about a movie that came out about a book, she's like, the book was so much better. <laughs> Most of the time, right? The book was so much better. Just because she, in her imagination, it's different than what somebody else's imagination was when they put it on the screen. I say that to try to get you to be more like Amy and less like Dexter today as we read through this. Because your mind, if it's engaged in the images that you're seeing that are on the screen right now, you should be taken back to other places in Scripture. You should immediately think about the cloud in the desert that was a symbol of God's presence. You should immediately understand that the rainbow up until a couple years ago was not on a flag. Can I get a hello? Okay. The rainbow is a sign of God's what? His promise. Then his face, this mighty angel, his face like the sun, brilliant, Okay, like the sun. And the Bible says there in verse 2, his legs like pillars of fire. Now, you can interpret the word from the original language as legs or feet. But all of a sudden, I start to think back to Revelation chapter 1, where it starts to depict Jesus as having legs and feet like burnished bronze and scripture in Daniel that describes the son of man and the angel of the Lord in the same sort of uh, technical words in verse one. So then in verse two, it says this, and he had a little scroll. The Bible, actually, the translation there from Greek is not book, but booklet. Okay. So it definitely is smaller than the other scroll we've read about in previous chapters. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say to me, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So we're going to dissect a few things in this passage and, and work through it. John is basically communicating to us that a supernatural being, what I perceive to be a divine being, has now come down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow as a crown, face like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire, his legs like pillars of fire. The thing that I notice is that appearance and importance are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. So there's this grand description of a grand being, and obviously there's something big that's going to take place even if he only has something little in his hand. So in my view, the mighty angel, this divine being, is the angel of the Lord who you've seen throughout Scripture and biblical history. It's another image 
to look at when we think of Christ. Now you say, how, how is this possible? We've seen him as a lamb. We've seen him as these other things. We've talked about him as the judge, Jesus, the judge of the earth. John is in the midst of this vision, and he's getting a revelation, and there are no limits to how God wants to depict his son. Okay? There are no limits to that. So if you wanted to check out some of these, this is not an exhaustive list, but if you're taking notes like Miss Julie always does, keep doing that. Don't ever stop, okay? Because I keep using you as an example. Genesis chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 22, chapter 31, chapter 33, chapter 48. All of these have the angel of the Lord present. Then the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. Then to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. And then you see him in other places as well. In fact, he showed up to Samson's parents. I didn't even remember that they had names. (laughs) But the angel of the Lord met Samson's parents and delivered the news about Samson being born. There's some very interesting things talking about the angel of the Lord throughout Scripture. And as I said, the, the, the way that John describes him is awfully familiar because it's similar to Daniel chapter 5, or Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, and we'll read that short passage, verse 5 and 6. It says this, and again, this is many years before John and before Jesus. Daniel says this in chapter 10, verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. And it says in verse 6, it goes on to say, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, brilliant, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a mighty multitude. Daniel also describes this character in chapter 12. If you look that up, you can read that at your own, uh, on your own time. But it's also very familiar if you read Revelation chapter 1 because it describes Jesus in the same exact way. So there are scholars out there. There are people who study. There are commentaries and all those things. Some say yes. Some say no. I'm convinced for several reasons that this is a depiction of Jesus Christ because of several reasons that I'll give you right now. First is this. His posture demonstrates his dominion. He is putting one foot on land and one foot on the sea. He is over all things. Okay, This is not just your normal, average, run-of-the-mill Cupid angel. This is a mighty angel. He's described with that language. And all those images that we talked about, cloud, rainbow, sun, fire, they're all pointing to divinity, they're not merely just a supernatural being like a regular angel. The little scroll also seems to be different than the scroll that has just been opened in the previous chapters with the seals. There's a couple differences that I note which I think are important. It is not, according to how I'm reading the scripture and studying the scripture, it is not the unsealed scroll from the previous chapters 
That happens within the context of the divine council, the throne room of God, with all those beings and creatures and the only one who's worthy unseals it. Now there's a miniature version of something, a little scroll that's in the angel's hands, and it's not called the scroll. It's not called the unsealed scroll. He could have used plenty of other de uh, descriptors to be able to try to help us understand this is the same scroll, but he didn't. And it seems, because of the adjective, the descriptor little, that it is not the same as the one that was in the throne room of God. That was something, and this is important, this is a, um, a, a delineation or differentiation between the two the thing that was unsealed, the scroll that was unsealed in the throne room of God included judgments that had already been completed by the time this mighty angel stands there with a little scroll in his hand. So they'd already been completed in the visionary timeline that John has witnessed. The seven thunders are a mystery. <laughs> I would tell you, they are unsolved. I don't know if you have ever watched that show back in the day, Unsolved Mysteries. Um, it's an unsolved mystery. Your pastor has studied until my eyes are bloodshot. I've looked in all kinds of commentaries from all walks of the same Christian Judeo faith. And there's nobody that has an answer about these things because they, they, they're not mentioned in the previous biblical record anywhere. And they're not referred to after this passage. But it's clear that there's something going on that's mysterious because they're speaking. It doesn't say that they just like roared. It's, it literally says John is told after the seven thunders appear, he's told to not write down what they spoke. So you can speculate all you want about those things, but I think it's important for you to remember, or not remember, but it's important for you to think about right now. When it says this, the voice from heaven spoke to John and said, seal up what they have said and do not write it down. This is the only place in the entire book of Revelation. That words are not revealed, but they are hidden. For God's purpose, for the future, maybe because they're terrible things that if we knew any of the details of, they would cause panic and that sort of stuff. For whatever reason, it's the only place in all of Revelation. Because Revelation really means that. It means revealing. It's, it's God revealing himself and the risen Christ to John and to the churches then and to us as re-readers of the word of God even today, thousands of years later. It's interesting that John's told not to write down what they say. I've tried to imagine what kinds of things they would have said or what the context is, and so have many others, and there is truly no answer. Someday we will know, but there's no room for speculation um, here because we're not told anything. Um, it's just hidden and sealed up from us as readers. Look at verse 5. It says this, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. I don't know if you realize this or not. And there are people who are trying to um, 
how do I say that? How do I put that kindly? They are trying to extinguish the knowledge of God in the world. They, uh, if you get what I'm saying, they're trying to eliminate references to God, even though our money still says what it says, even though we still say in God we trust. All of those things, and even though people still put their hand up in a courtroom and solemnly swear an oath, it used to be on the Bible, I don't know if they even still do that, uh, that they'll tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help them Shiva, so help them the God of the Hindus, so help them the prophet Muhammad, no, so help me God Almighty tell the truth, like my seventh grade teacher used to tell me all the time, well, let me rephrase that so you have the correct context of the story. Like I used to hear her tell others all the time, tell the truth and shame the devil. She didn't tell me that. I just heard her say that. Tell the truth and shame the devil. Um, so there's, there's interesting things in the biblical construct that we have even today in our nation that we do when we raise a hand and make an oath or we solemnly swear. This angel does this. He takes this posture. It says he raised his right hand to heaven and swore, verse 6 says this, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, and it says more than that, who created heaven and what is in it. The earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. Verse 7, but, in the days, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, which we'll read about in the middle of chapter 11. We won't get to it today. But in those days where the sound of the seventh angel, the trumpet, happens, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he has announced to his servants and to the prophets, or to his servants, the prophets. So returning for a second to that angel of the Lord um, imagery, okay, we call that a motif, an image that keeps showing up in Scripture that's meant to point us somewhere. I want you to think about who in the Bible ever swears an oath? If you've been to Sunday school before, you may have heard stories of um, you know, Abraham or uh, people that are in the Old Testament that swear an oath to one another. They make an alliance to one another. If you're familiar with the writer of Hebrews, uh, when he says in Hebrews chapter 4 through 7, really in those chapters, he really hones in on the fact that um, God couldn't find anybody to, who was worthy to make an oath with, so he made an oath with himself. He's a, you better hear me today, he's a promise-keeping God to you, but he, his word at stake with himself is important. So, this can't be a run-of-the-mill angel because he's making an oath before God and because, me engaging my mind, I can't find evidence anywhere in Scripture of anything other than people making oaths to God, people making oaths to people, or God making oaths with people and God making oaths to himself. Only God and humans swear oaths in the context of Scripture. There's no other place where an angel does this. So, 
The angel of the Lord motif is apparent. That image is apparent that this is a representation of God, the second person, the Son, Jesus Christ. You should be curious about what regular angel has the authority to speak to God and say, time's up, right? Okay, so if you're just following the context of Scripture, it can't be Michael, Gabriel, it can't be the archangels. They don't have the ability and authority to say to God, okay, time is no more. Time is up and it's time to go. There's an agreement, you, you have to see this in scripture, there's an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit every single time they are mentioned. There is no disunity, that's why we call it the Trinity, triple unity, okay? They are unified in purpose, in vision, in all matters, and here now, Jesus the angel of the Lord, standing with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, declares to the Father, my time is here. Time is, there will be no more delay. John is witnessing this point in time where I feel like if you, if you really kind of just use your imagination a little bit, you'd understand that basically this angel is saying there will be no more frustrations to the plan of God. There will be no more contingencies. There's no other thing that needs to take place. Now is this moment. Now is the time. And you start to see that unfold in the pursuing or ensuing chapters um, after this point. The mystery of God, the word says, will be fulfilled just as he promised and as he made clear to his servants, the prophets. The Bible says something interesting in Amos chapter 3. Verse 7, it says this very thing. The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. This is important. It's important for those people back then to have understood that God was speaking through the prophets he gave them. And that they are to listen to those voices because they are the voice of God to the people. Hebrews says that God spoke in many ways over the history of time. But now he speaks directly to us, his people. It's amazing when you think about it, that God still speaks. He's not dead. He's not deaf. He's not handicapped. No offense, Miss Julie. He, he is able-bodied. The Bible says... The Bible says that his hand is not too short to save. There is no limit to his power. His dominion will last forever and ever. I thought about it while we were worshiping this morning. And I was standing there worshiping and I was thinking, there's never been a moment that God has not been receiving worship. And for me to decline the offer to worship him is not okay. I don't need to wait for goosebumps. I don't have to have my favorite song. The candles don't have to be lit and the air just the right temperature. Although, if you know me, the air does need to be at the right temperature um, in order to feel the presence of God. But you can feel him and sense him and hear from him no matter where you are. A prison cell, a desert, a mountaintop, wherever you are, God still speaks. 
Revelation 10.7 tells us that the mystery will be fulfilled in the days of the seventh trumpet. So then we go to verse 8. Verse 8 through 11. Verse 8 says this, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven, which I would perceive to be the Father, speaking, spoke to John again and said this, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. Verse 9 said, So I went. Um, How many of you think if that was you, you'd just run away? I mean, I'd be a little bit scared. It's a mighty angel, and I'm supposed to go take something from him. The, the father says, go and take. And he said to me, so he goes to the angel. He's, he goes to the angel, and the angel told him, uh, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. Oh, there's more good news. <laughs> uh, it'll make your stomach bitter. It's going to make your stomach hurt. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as Honey, I don't really want to get into discussions about intestinal distress, but there are some things that I think taste amazing, and later on they cause some distress. <laughs> Can I get an amen? You know what I'm talking about, right? On my trip to Florida, you may know this, my roots are in the northeast. Um, the middle of my life is in the northeast. My roots are down in Florida and whatever. Anyway, because of all the Yankees moving to Florida, they now have these places everywhere called bagel shops. Y'all don't know what a bagel is. Sam and I have this discussion all the time. A biscuit is a better bagel, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Let me, let me just tell you. And I love biscuits. I love homemade biscuits. But there is something special about a salt bagel. I don't know if you've ever even heard that these things exist. But it's like a pretzel that got kissed by God and filled with goodness, like cream cheese or egg and cheese or whatever. It's amazing. If anybody flies to the Northeast, and the Pedans have actually done this, they carried stinky bagels back on a plane for me um, on one of their trips because, because they know I love them. Okay, Everybody on the plane probably hated them for doing that, but they, they love their pastor. Let me just tell you, I ate in three days, I ate a half dozen bagel sandwiches, and that's a lot of carbs and a lot of sodium and a lot of stuff. And let me just tell you, the intestinal distress, I could not care less because it tasted so good. Pastor, why are you saying this? The angel says, take and eat this. It'll taste sweet, but then it will cause bitterness or literal illness stomach distress after it's digested. Why is that? Because the message of the scroll and the message wider of the word of God does at times sound sweet to our ears, but man, can it cause us some internal distress, not intestinal but internal distress. When you're confronted with the truth of the word of God about a behavior, about an issue, about a problem, a relationship, and all of a sudden you recognize, ooh, I've looked in the mirror of God's word and I don't look so good. It causes internal distress. But let me tell you, it leads to great things. Amen? It says this in verse 10, So I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Verse 11, and I was told, you must, pay attention, you must again prophesy 
about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So what, what was spoken happened. It was sweet, but then it was bitter. And then John is told that he's got to prophesy about many nations, peoples, and languages. The way that I can understand this, the, the most uh, basic, elemental way to understand this moment that is happening with John, is that this, in verse 11, is a second commission. It is a second time that John is being commissioned, and it now has an expanded purpose. Because if you remember, the letters to the seven churches are churches that are established, that have people who are believers and all those things. But now John is told that you've got to prophesy to the nations. And I'm reminded in Revelation 7 where we read about there was the group who were the, the Jews, the, the um, people of God. And then there was a multitude that could not be numbered. The Bible says from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. So now John is being commissioned and his, his commission is being expanded and opened to prophesy either about, to, or against these people's nations' languages. Um, the Gentiles... The people who were living on the earth. The Bible said something very sad last week when we read that in Revelation chapter 9. It said after all those judgments, after all that death, after all of those things, the people did not repent, nor did they give up those things that they were attached to. Murder, violence, wickedness of every design. Those things continued even after all of those judgments were released. Now, John is given this commission in addition to say, prophesy to these nations. These other things have not brought them to the place that they should have been. And so prophecy and the telling of what God's purpose is, is going to have to happen. Remember, God's salvation and his redemption is not only for the Jewish people, the native-born or Jewish heritage, God's chosen people, but it's also for whosoever will. It's for whosoever will, according to every other place in Scripture after the Old Testament, and plenty of places within the Old Testament give us a sight line to the future to say, no, 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 God is not just keeping this for a one special privileged people group. He's got this idea that the whole world can be saved. And I believe that whosoever will includes those that demonstrate what I call believing loyalty. Believing loyalty is different than walking the aisle at a VBS when you're 11 years old. Can I get an amen? Believing loyalty means I was talking to a dear sister of mine yesterday. And she said, this was just a moment of private consultation. It's, I don't care that you know who it is or anything. A dear sister of mine. And she said, Pastor, I am just seeking the Lord because I want my robe of righteousness to be without spot and without wrinkle. 
That's somebody who is devouring the word of God, trying to live according to God's word. That is somebody who's demonstrating believing loyalty, not just walking an aisle and saying a prayer, but at the ripe old age of if you were seven then, 27 now, if you were 11 then, and you're 100 now, that you are walking and following in his footsteps. Believing loyalty, not just the prayer of faith, but the life that follows that prayer of faith. Amen? So I I love that old translation that I grew up reading. King James and the New King James. Whosoever will. Whosoever will. There's a spiritual application for you and I, and I've probably already given you a hint and showed my hand, demonstrated my hand. There's a spiritual application for you and I when John eats this scroll. And it's worth taking a minute to just consider. If you go back and read Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3 at some other point, you'll find a mirror of this same moment. Okay, It's not exact same details, but there's something that happens with Ezekiel. And he's told to eat the parcel, the scroll that's in front of him. He's told to eat it and then to prophesy because there is an internalization of the message. Okay, you are today what you ate yesterday. I am six salt bagels. Okay, the word of God. Well, and I had an everything bagel in there, so I guess technically seven. Okay, the word of God needs to be internalized by the messenger. Now. It would be easy for you and I, I'm going to be you and I right now, it'd be easy for y'all to look up that way and think, well, he's the messenger. John's the messenger. Pastor's that messenger. He's, He's got to devour the word of God. But you know what? The truth of God's word says something different. It says there are some called and gifted and skilled and graced by God in order to do stuff like this or like that. But let me just tell you something. You are graced by God because of his salvation to share the message of hope with others. And it's got to be internalized in order for you to be able to actually share it with others. So don't just think, well, pastor, how many pages of the Bible do you eat a day? (laughs) How many do you, how many do we, we are all called to share the hope of God's word, his purpose for humanity, his plan for us. We're all called to do that same thing. So the messenger internalizes the message and then it became part of him. It became part of John. It became part of Ezekiel. When you become someone who devours God, God's word, it becomes part of you. I have a friend and a dear mentor who I love very, very much, much older than me. He's pastored many years and now pastors, pastors. This man has internalized the word of God and I'm I am jealous in a holy way every time I'm with him because he can call to memory just just like that. You could say the word righteousness and he'll say, well, John 17 says this. Jesus said, your righteousness is like filthy rat. And he'll just 
he, he just does it. And then there have been a time or two where I've looked on my Bible app and gone, wait, is that the right reference? I can't believe it. He's really internalized the word of God. Maybe some of you think you're too old. Maybe some of you think you're too busy. Maybe some of you think you're too young. Okay, I'm going to preach this way. You've got to internalize the message. You're never too old to memorize God's word. You say, well, why would I, I want to do that? So that it becomes part of you. Just like the nutrients that I absorbed from the food I ate yesterday, they feed and fuel the systems of my body today. The caffeine that I didn't finish today has fueled the systems of my body this morning. When you internalize the word of God, it fuels your character, your behavior, your mental state. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can help you understand or be understanding of, it is, the intentions and thoughts of the heart. The word of God can do this. The word of God is a judge to us and our character and our behavior. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says that all scripture is God-breathed and it's good for your correction. <laughs> we don't like that part. We just want the encouragement. It's good for our rebuke, our reproof, all of those things. It says that it was in inspired and breathed out by God so that every man and woman could be trained in righteousness. The word of God is powerful. Psalm 119, 105 says that the word of God is a lamp to my feet and it lights my path. You're in a dark place. You need time with Jesus. Pastor, are you talking like don't go see mental health providers? I didn't say that. You can see them. I have seen them. You can talk to a counselor. That's wonderful. But have you talked to the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father? Amen? Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are not only hearers of the word, but doers as well. So don't just be here to hear the word of God today, but go home and obey it. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The word of God is, if I could say it to you kindly, it's more important than you think it is. It's more important than we think it is. Studying the Bible, and here's, here's a, a difference maker, I think. Because I think some people go into studying the Bible in order to try to absorb knowledge as if we're going to graduate and get a degree somewhere. It's not in the worldly context of studying and, okay, I did a chapter test and I got this done. I can't believe some of the kids are already prepping for back to school. This is crazy. And some of the teachers here say, oh, no. Um, we have teachers in our, uh, in our church who are already prepping for the year and have been, and students who are not wanting probably to go back to school. When we say study the word of God, I'm not saying study the study guide. 
should I wait and preach this in September once some of the kids have gone back to school? I've passed many a test in my life because I studied the answers. In fact, I learned nothing in sixth grade. Mom, please forgive me. We were homeschooled, and my brother, my brother, he's the sinner, he convinced me, <clears throat> he convinced me um, to snag the key to the file box. And so we would go in, and we had some late-night reading. Instead of comic books, we would read up on the answer keys for the tests. Say, Pastor, how dare you? Many a test you can pass in this life just by answering questions that you got on a study guide. But when you internalize the word of God, and we talk about the beauty of scripture often, you could literally reread the entire books of the Bible, the whole book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, one time in a year, and the next year repeat it, and you will get different stuff out of every different day, even out of the same chapter, because of the goodness of God and how the word of God is alive and active. And it wants to be, it wants to be more active in you. God wants his word to be more active in you. So I'm going to give you these five things quick, and then I'm going to call the worship team up and we'll close I want to give you five things that I think will be very helpful for you in studying the Bible. Because this is more than just studying for knowledge's sake. It's about absorbing the truth of God's word and who he is and how it shapes our lives. So these five things, they're all starting with S's, so they'll be easy to write down. You've got to search out God's word. Search the scriptures. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the Bereans searched the scriptures daily, that they went through the word of God daily to make sure that the message they were hearing was actually the message that God wanted them to understand. So search the scriptures. I don't think that every day of your Bible reading should, should be you Googling, in, in essence, Googling an operative word, okay? If you're struggling with the fruit of the spirit like peace, and you just look for the word peace. That's not the kind of searching I'm talking about. I'm saying read through it with a discipline and don't be scared of the weird parts. Engage in them too. Hello? If I get a louder amen, I'll go quick. Okay, I'll wait. No, I'm just kidding. All right, the second thing is this. Soak in the word of God. Um, I think there have been many great thinkers and philosophers and people that have said this in recent times. In today's digital age and era, we do not understand what the word meditation means. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa pastor, are you new age now? Are you talking about yoga and meditation? No, I'm not talking about that kind. I'm talking about what the, the psalmist said when he said, I meditate on the word of the Lord day and night. That means I think about it. I dissect it. I pray that the Holy Spirit helps reveal the meaning of it to me. I ask questions. How can I apply this to my life? I soak. I meditate on the word of God. The third thing to do is to store it. To store it up. To put it to memory. To, to make in the digital age, we're, ah, I don't want to say it like this, but I'm going to, we're stupider, 
okay, in the digital age than ever before. We're more ignorant today. It took me a long time to remember what my wife's phone number is. And we've been married for 15 plus years at this point. But when she got that phone number, it took me a long time to commit it to memory. I had to look it up in Kroger in order to put it in the, the thing on the thing. <laughs> okay? Because we're getting, we have so much information in the palm of our hands that we are ignorant of information that is important. So write a Bible verse down, put it on your fridge, put it on your mirror. Those are the two places we all go. Store it in your heart. The psalmist said that he hides the word of God in his heart so that he would not sin against him. It's because I'm allowing it to be developed inside of me. The fourth thing is this, submit to it. I'll just stand here and wait for that to soak in. You can't rewrite the pages you don't like in the Bible, even though culture is trying to do that. You can't remove the stuff that's there. The stuff that's there that's uncomfortable, you still have to submit to because you're submitting to the God of the word as well as to his written word. So submitting my life to God's word is important. You say, well, yeah, pastor, it's important for you. It's important for us <laughs> to submit ourselves to the word of God. When you become knowledgeable or you receive knowledge for the first time, that makes you accountable to that knowledge. Right. Now that you know better, do better. Let me say that again. Now that you know better, once you've learned God's word, then you are to do better according to God's word. This is not your pastor preaching some acts of service on your behalf that are going to earn you salvation. I'm telling you what demonstrates the salvation you have is that you live a life that is believing loyalty, submitting yourself to the word of God. It's hard you don't like it. I don't like it. Is it worth it? It is. And it will be in the end when we are in, on full display in a robe of righteousness that has no spot and no wrinkle. And don't let me get on a soapbox for a minute. But don't think about elbowing your neighbor or think about the person that really needs this, the word of God. They really, you and I need to submit to the word of God. Well, how do you submit to it? You just listen to pastor preach every Sunday? No, you read it for yourself throughout the week. You digest it. You take it in so that it can feed and fuel the systems of your spiritual body, but also it has great results in the physical life you live. The fifth thing is this, share it. How many of you have ever been around a child? <laughs> it should be every hand. Raise them for me, please. Make sure you're awake. Okay. You've been a child and you've been around children, even if you don't have children currently or they're grown up or whatever. Let me just tell you about these little booger-picking, unruly, selfish, bratty little things that we call children that I love so much. <laughs> 
I'm talking like this, Ava, because my girls are not here. Shh, don't tell them that I said this, okay? Christianity, our walk of faith with Christ, was never supposed to be selfish. You've met little kids who are like, that's mine. And they're selfish. They're demanding their own way. They want their own thing. They think it belongs to them. But I want that. And it's all for them. Until they recognize and they're corrected. And hopefully even their grandparents help encourage them to share. It's okay, Johnny. Let, let Billy take this toy. And he can play with it for a little while. You say, Pastor, that's so elementary. That feels like you're talking down. I want you to grasp the fullness of this. God never meant for you to be a selfish Christian. There was a lie promoted years ago and it's still in the mentality of American Christianity. And that is what's in between me and my relationship with God is a private thing. No, it's not. It's a public thing. That's why we do water baptism, because we're going public with this declaration that we believe in the only one worthy of believing in. And so when we take in God's word, when we search it, when we soak in it, when we store it up in our hearts, when we submit to it in our lives, then there's got to be an outflow where it gets shared with others. You can't wait for goosebumps you can't wait for your favorite Bible character to show up. You just have to do. That's what discipline is, is you just have to do and you'll see results. I promise you, your coworkers will see results when you're a student of the Word of God. Your clients will see results. Your students will see results. Your spouse will see results in your life when you do these things. And you will too. Will you stand with me today?